There are four times today as many people displaced from weather and climate stressors than by war. Four times as many people are displaced by climate, drought, floods, bad weather. It's over 20 million people a year. And this is with the projections of uh, the climate changing a number that is likely to increase. We do know from the science that just the number of extreme events are projected to increase in frequency and severity. And we know already that four times as many people are displaced by those extreme events than by war. Are we ready to deal with this challenge? Not yet, but we're getting ready. A warm welcome to Climate Thinkers, a podcast from the Swedish national daily newspaper Svenska Dagbladet. My name is Peter Alestig and the idea with this podcast is to let the scientists who really know what's going on talk about what's happening in the climate on Earth and what consequences it has. Today we'll dig a bit deeper into a slightly different subject than in the previous two episodes. We're talking about climate migration. And the scientist we'll meet is Coco Warner. She's an American but lives in Bonn, Germany and works for the UN. And throughout her career, mostly at the UN University, she has published several groundbreaking studies on climate migration and shown that climate migration is not something that's in a dystopian future, but rather something that is happening already here and now at a very large scale all over the world. A large part of her research has been in the field where she's met people who experience climate change in their everyday lives. And one of those meetings that she remembers particularly well was in Senegal in 2009. So I was in a tiny, tiny schoolhouse with four generations of farmers. This was on the coast of Senegal. We had an interpreter who was the local school teacher. We had a grandfather, his adult son, his like 20-year-old sons, and a, just a bunch of little kids running around and sitting on the floor listening. And um, what the grandfather told us was when he was a youth, the whole area was forested. And so he was a farmer, but he'd go to the forest and gather berries and forest products to supplement what his family needed. A big drought came, which we know was the great droughts of the Sahel in the late 70s and early 80s. Not a drop of rain fell for years, and the forest died. And when trees die, people need a source of income. The people were also suffering. And so they cut down the trees and widespread land degradation and desertification also set in at the time. So then the sun kind of piped in. Maybe he was 50, 55. And he said, yeah, when that happened, I was just becoming an adult. So I became a farmer and did the best that I could to feed my family as a farmer. Sometimes we couldn't quite bring it together. And so I'd commute to the nearest town to do odd jobs. And we somehow made it work. And then he pointed to his you know, early 20s son and he said, you know, for my son, there's a local NGO who's trying to provide livelihoods for the local kids. But the father just reflected, I don't know if this kid can stay here. I don't know if there's any livelihood that my son that will actually keep him here, let alone the aspirations. Every parent wants their child to go and do great things and live a great life. 
And then he pointed to the kids on the floor and he said, and for these kids, I don't know. I don't know what the future brings, whether they can stay or not. So what have you learned since this? Because already then you discovered, okay, this is actually, you know, environmentally induced migration is a real thing. Most definitely. So this family was talking to us in Senegal and hundreds of families that we talked to, thousands, I mean, I wasn't always the one doing the interviews, have told us essentially completely consistent stories all over the world. So what we notice is there's more awareness now about climate change in all parts of the world. On the one hand, more and more people are talking about these stressors, but also people's lived experience, their memories. The reason why I chose that example of a you know, four generations, essentially, was the memory of people. It's like, things are changing. It's not the same as it as it used to be. And the environment that we have relied on for everything, for water, food, livelihoods, is changing. And um, people use migration or some form of movement as one of a whole number of coping mechanisms to adjust. I met Coco Warner at the UN campus in Bonn, just next to the river Rhine that glides like a snake through the city. This is where she's worked in recent years, first as head of research on climate migration at the UN University, and then as head of the Impacts, Vulnerability and Risks program at UNFCCC. The case study in Senegal was part of the world's first worldwide study of climate migration, REACH4 which she led on behalf of the UN University. But since then, research on climate migration has exploded, as Coco Warner puts it. Today, research has identified four distinct patterns in climate migration. Three that are happening at a large scale already now, and a fourth that research just barely has begun to see, but which is expected to grow rapidly in the future. We have four patterns of people on the move related to climate stressors. And I'll I'll outline those. What we see today is that people, and it's all over the world, south, north, east, west, people will experience storms, floods, droughts, usually kind of these shock situations that threaten people's lives. People may get injured, their homes may be destroyed, and they move just to protect themselves. And they move very quickly, and we call that displacement. When the situation has stabilized and it's safe to go back, most people try and return. A second pattern that we see today is people whose livelihoods are very sensitive to the climate, farmers, uh, fisher folk, as two examples, maybe ranchers, will have trouble with the weather. The rain will come too early or too late, way too much at once, or the rain doesn't come at all. And it destroys the basis of their livelihoods. Let's say a heat wave or a storm destroys crops. And that means that a farmer can't feed her children or his children. And usually one of the family members will be selected to try and make it to the next place where they can get a job. And that might be the next town. It might be the next valley over. And when the person, if they're lucky, if they find a job, they'll try and send money back home or remittances. A third pattern that we see is climate stressors getting mixed in with really complex situations where there's conflict. Um, In some parts of the world, you have very fragile states that are war-torn. 
You'll have a drought that makes the situation even worse. And because of the presence of war and persecution, some people are able to move as refugees because they're protected by the Convention on Refugees, like the Geneva Convention. And they're able to move and try and seek asylum in a safe place. For those people, return is only possible once it's safe. And there's a fourth pattern that we're only barely starting to see, but we anticipate to be a much larger phenomena in the future. And that is what happens when a place, when you just can't live there anymore. Maybe there's no water or maybe the coasts are eroding away or perhaps there's sea level rise. The habitability of a place becomes threatened. And that's something with climate change that really raises concern because we hear reports about massive desertification or land being degraded, sea level rise, or water not being as available. There are already big cities today that are sometimes not having water. We've heard of Cape Town a couple of years ago, three days away from no water. Fortunately, it rained. But this question of habitability and where do people go and what if they can't go back, that really keeps us up at night and we don't have the answers yet. And all of these four are actually happening now. Yes, and all over the world. North, south, take your pick. You'll see really amazing case studies in the literature from coastal Alaska. Indigenous peoples whose traditional livelihoods are on the coast, hunting and fishing, facing permafrost melt, and trying to organize themselves to move to another place. Um, you have small island development states in the Pacific, some areas in sub-Saharan Africa, some areas in, you know, the permafrost areas of Siberia, it's all over the world. When we talk about migration, at least in Europe, you know, a lot of people think about the boats coming over uh, mm. the Mediterranean and so on, and people migrating up here to Europe. Is this in some way connected to climate as well? You know, what we're finding from the research is that Almost always, if you ask people where they want to be, they want to be at home because home is where their family is, their livelihoods, their culture, everything they care about. And there are many, many factors that affect the difficult decision often of going to a different place. Sometimes people move away to pursue a dream. And you would hope that all young people in the world get a chance to maybe move away to college or move away to build their talents and their jobs. What we're talking about with climate change often falls into the more difficult category of managing risk. Do I stay and deal with a variety of things, maybe questions about how do I feed my family? Do we have water? Do we have food? Where's our next, you know, where's my paycheck coming from or my livelihood? Kind of weighed against the risk of moving to something uncertain and unknown. And those are the kinds of dilemmas that families all over the world are already facing with movement as we know it, and even more so with that additional stress of climate change. In 2019, about 24 million people were forced to flee various types of weather disasters, the majority from storms. But the big question now is what happens to that figure when the climate on Earth gets warmer? The estimates from research vary wildly, from 200 million by 2050 to 1 billion. 
but the figures are surrounded by vast insecurities. Coco Warner points out that a lot depends on how people react when the Earth gets warmer. Another area of insecurities is what happens if parts of the planet become uninhabitable. In May 2020, a startling research study was published in the journal PNAS. The scientists looked at the temperature range in which humans have lived throughout history and compared this to forecasts for how the Earth's climate zones are changing. The result? Over the next 50 years, areas where 1 to 3 billion people are expected to live may become basically uninhabitable with average temperatures above 29 degrees Celsius. Other researchers have in turn warned that high wet bulb temperatures, a combination of heat and humidity, can even make it dangerous to be outdoors in some places. If the humidity is 90% and it's 35 degrees Celsius warm, the human body basically loses its ability to cool down. A couple of hours in that type of heat can be deadly. These wet bulb temperatures have already been experienced in several places on Earth according to another new study. And on top of all this we have what Coco Warner mentioned earlier, droughts and rising sea levels. So it's easy to paint a very pessimistic picture of the future. But Coco Warner also wants to nuance the picture and says that what may seem uninhabitable now could actually be habitable in the future. Habitability may rely on some, some very basic factors, like particularly water and food, but there are a whole bunch of factors that can change. What might be tolerable for one group of people might look different for another group of people. So instead of saying what's habitable and not habitable, let's go to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and their assessments. Last fall, the IPCC released a special report on oceans and cryosphere. Cryosphere is ice-covered areas or permafrost. And, and there are projections of things like sea level rise and um, how a coastal area deals with sea level rise. There are a whole bunch of different ways. Some countries are talking about population retreats. Some countries are talking about keeping the water out through building seawalls and dikes, and there are probably a whole bunch of things in between. So I've even read in engineering magazines that there are really far out solutions like having floating cities or floating islands, who knows? We know that deltas, low-lying areas, coastal areas, low-lying small island development states, they immediately come to mind when you talk about sea level rise that's already projected. So these low-lying coastal areas are heavily exposed. Other areas, since you asked about habitability, we know people need water. The way that we deal with water today, you can certainly ship water across very, like with pipelines and things. You can transport water far, far distances. We may not have been accustomed to really large quantities enough to support a civilization. So dry lands are definitely an area that raise questions. There's another trend that the IPCC literature assessment has identified, and that is biome shift. Here's an example. The country that I live in, even though I'm not from here, uh, Germany, a typical biome in Germany is forest. And over the past years, it's been very dry. 
and occasionally you've had a very, very damaging winter. And so the forests are under a lot of stress. And some foresters, like you'll hear on the morning news, you know, hundreds of thousands of trees or maybe even a million trees might die. And some of the literature is suggesting that you may see a forest biome shift perhaps permanently to a grassland biome. So those kinds of things also are going on at a very large scale across the world. What we don't know is what that means for where people live and what people need to have a sustained civilization in that area. But those are the big things. Low-lying coastal areas, water, particularly in dry lands, and um, biome shift. So now we get into one of Coco Warner's most difficult tasks in her current job at the UNFCCC to get the countries of the world to agree on how to deal with the likely growing climate migration. One very controversial issue is whether climate threats should be grounds for asylum, just like war. And in early 2020, a groundbreaking decision was made on this topic. A man from an island nation called Kiribati, which is threatened by rising sea levels, applied for asylum in New Zealand in 2015, citing that his survival is threatened by climate change. New Zealand rejected his application. But last year, the UN Committee on Human Rights issued a ruling on the case, and their conclusion was to send climate refugees back to their home countries could actually be a violation of their human rights. According to Coco Warner, though, the statement from the Committee on Human Rights might not have any far-reaching consequences yet. But it does show that the issue of climate migration is getting higher and higher on the agenda. And it also shows that the discussions on how the world should handle climate migrations are very difficult. Coco Warner points out that there are three aspects that are particularly important going forward. What we need is to make sure that if people move, that they do so in ways that are regular. That means that they're documented. That means that they have legally recognized papers. We don't want people moving in precarious situations where they have to be smuggled across a border or anything like that. We want regular pathways for migration if people move. We want to make sure that people are safe. We definitely want to make sure that people, if they do choose to move or if they have to move, whatever, that it's dignified. And behind each one of those words, regular, safe, dignified, are a whole world of ills that we must avoid. I'll just start with dignified. When people are vulnerable and stressed, after a big, let's say, an earthquake or a tsunami or um, a weather-related event, since we're talking about climate change, There's a pattern that I saw in my research, so this isn't systematic, but I was shocked how frequently families that we talked to mentioned human trafficking. And I was one researcher with the team talking to individual families, asking how did this flood or storm or whatever affect your family? Did you have to move? And we heard it in some parts of sub-Saharan Africa, we heard it in Southeast Asia, we heard it in Latin America, where families, very vulnerable families, were facing these tough choices. Or maybe not even choices, but dignified means 
that we don't want people to be vulnerable because there are nefarious forces that take advantage of people. And then you've got all kinds of terrible things, human trafficking and all that bad stuff. We don't want that. It's in our hands now to work with policymakers and make sure that if people move, and again, climate change is a big stress now and in the future, want to make sure that it's dignified. We want to make sure that people have visa arrangements and that it's regular. We want to make sure that people are safe. So those are, I think, three big pillars that the Global Compact on Migration has put out into the world. Um, the majority of countries of the world signed up to the Global Compact on Migration, and it's really relevant when you're talking about climate change and people on the move. So, you know, on the one hand, you have this work and like the, how should I say, utopian kind of a picture of how this will work in the future. Yeah, yeah. And then on the other hand, you have the reality that we see, you know, some people point at, for instance, the migration from Central America towards the US being partially environmentally induced um, because of drought and so forth. And the same goes for Syria. And uh, with that in mind, you see the political reaction to those yeah. cases. And, you know, if you extrapolate and see an increasing number of uh, migrants partially, mm -hmm. or maybe mostly because of climate change. What future could that be if mm. things don't follow the utopian way? Yeah, you're right. I'm, I work at the United Nations, so obviously I want to paint a very good future for us to live into. To answer your question, instead of looking forward, it might be dystopic if we aren't effective. We want to have a really good future, and that means that there are many things that we have to do now. Let's look back look back to lessons from the 20th century. You had so many people moving for all kinds of reasons in the 20th century, just in Europe. The history of Europe, when it was war-torn, I understand that 50 million civilians in Germany were moving around as refugees, just looking for a safe place to be. And we don't want to repeat that. Certainly don't want to repeat those heart-wrenching lessons from the past. So as a lesson for the future, I would hope that we would be courageous. And when I say we, maybe I mean the international community. I hope the countries will be courageous, as many are, and think very long-term and be very pragmatic. How do we create regular pathways? How do we make sure that um, if I'm a sending country and you're a receiving country, that we have the conversation. What do we do if people from my country come to your country? How do we make that arrangement so that it's agreeable and safe and dignified? That's one thing. We need very long-term conversations and a willingness to engage. What we want to avoid is that vulnerable people become the enemy because they're vulnerable people. They're just like you and me. They need help and there's help to be offered. And the best way to do that is to preempt and minimize the risk from the beginning. And then through very prudent policy, keep everybody calm and create policy that's agreeable. But that takes difficult early conversations. You know, it, we have these two future worlds, like one where we deal this together and a responsible <laughs> yeah. way, right? Everything's and, better together. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the other one where we're actually having, you know, huge migration flows mm -hmm. that maybe we are not prepared to deal with. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've talked about how these 
questions and the things that you see in your research also affect you as a person. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a bit about that? Let me find a couple of examples. I was in Bangladesh on the kind of perimeter. It was like an um, informal settlement. Some people would call them slums. And I was out talking with people who had been displaced from flooding. And uh, we were out with the film crew, so they were filming. And I had a break. They were talking with the family. And so I was like standing over the side and all of these little kids came and gathered around. And I didn't speak Bangla or the dialect that they were speaking. So I took out my notebook and I just started drawing pictures. We were playing like a, a picture game and I was just teaching them the word for it. And then they started drawing pictures for me and teaching the word to me. And it was so funny because here I am thousands of miles away from my own kids And these kids are about the same age and were just playing just like I would with my own kids. And up, I wouldn't say up until that point, but I'm, I at the time was a researcher. So I'm going out and I'm gathering research and talking to people and, and really cherishing the experience. But here there were kids and I'm a parent. And I saw, wow, these kids have been displaced and wow, it could easily be me in their shoes with my kids, trying to figure out how I get a dry place for my kids to sleep. And that really affected me and it made me realize again, and I realized this again and again, that it's not an issue out there. Climate change isn't an issue that some other place of the world deals with. And migration and displacement and forced migration is not an issue out there. It's very personal. Now I work in policy. I work at the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Secretariat. And it's our day job to help countries come together and basically realize the same thing. It's our collective issue. We have to work together on this issue. And it's, um, it's a great privilege. I love my job. It's very challenging. It's discouraging. When we collectively can't see eye to eye, also totally understandable and um, scary because time is running through our fingers. The part that I like best is what I said a couple of minutes ago. We're literally shaping the future together and there's nothing more exciting. Um, the stakes are really high, but that's usually in stories, that's usually when you get the best results. You know, It will happen. We will create a good place. I just have to believe that. The other dystopic future just goes against everything we believe in. What gives you hope in all this? Well, can I tell you another story? Okay. It's a personal experience with people coming to be neighbors. So right across, I live in Bonn, Germany. That's where the UNFCCC has its, that's where we work. So um, there is a student housing complex. Bonn has a university. And when the Syrian refugee crisis kind of washed across Europe, I guess that was at the end of 2015, the city of Bonn was faced with a situation of needing to house, I don't know how many Syrian refugees. And so they took 
this student housing complex and in a, overnight they repainted it and they started moving in Syrian families. So I don't know if you're familiar with dorm rooms, but they're really kind of small and usually have two students living in this tiny little room. And um, instead of two students, they were having families of, you know, five, four, five, six people living in that place. And the neighbors didn't like it, that they didn't have the information. It happened so fast. And, you know, banks started coming around telling us homeowners that, hey, we're going to have to re-talk about maybe refinancing your loan because maybe the property value was going to go down. It caused a big kerfuffle. A couple neighbors moved away. And uh, I felt really conflicted because this is my topic, people moving. But when it affected me and my neighborhood and, I don't know, my property values and all, I felt really conflicted and I also wasn't very happy about it. And then very soon after, this little kid came from next door. He came and rung the doorbell and he said, can I jump on the trampoline? And then the next day it was like five little kids. I'm like, sure, because I've got kids and, you know, they're playing kids, see things totally differently. And so they're jumping on the tramp and like, ugh. I feel so conflicted. And then we got a puppy and they're playing with the puppy. So this little kid over time became friends with my boys and um, started, I had a couple of semesters of Arabic in college. So I'm talking Bishwaya just a tiny, tiny little bit. And he's learning German and he starts telling us about his background. And his grandparents were killed on both sides of the family. He had made it to Germany with his father his mother and his brother got left behind in a refugee camp in, in a country near Syria. He just showed up a lot, and I'd give him, I don't know, a sandwich or whatever, just trying to kind of make his life a little easier and just hoping that things were going to work out okay. And then maybe about six months ago, I was walking the dog around the block one early morning, and this family is walking across the road on the sidewalk. And I looked over and I could see Zachariah and his dad because they're our neighbors. And there was a woman and a teenage boy walking. And I thought, no, it couldn't be. So I crossed the street to say hello. And I looked at Zachariah, I looked at the woman and man, they looked the same. And I knew immediately that they had been reunified. And I was so happy. And I'm like, Alhamdulillah, the tiny, tiny Arabic that I know. And I gave her a big hug, and she was for sure culturally overwhelmed. And I told Zachariah, your mom made it. I'm so happy. As conflicted as I was about having these, you know, new neighbors and people who were different and different culture, different language, all I really wanted was for their family to be together. And, um, and they made it. And I don't know what will happen from now on. They want to go home. But that experience was very hard. And I don't have a solution, but I do believe that there are solutions for our future. And some of us will be asked to be good neighbors and to welcome people into our communities. And it doesn't have to be as bad as we might think. I don't know if that's in, the, in our future. Everything is in our hands to preempt and minimize the risk. And there's a bunch of risk, including people moving, that we will need to manage and it will be our choice how we do that. And I hope that we do it in a way that will give us 
opportunities to learn and grow from one another. And it is probably there that some of the toughest decisions have to be made, but where it doesn't have to be bad and scary. We can really make it good together. Sometimes uh, the press will call and they'll say, give me a number. I want to know how many people will be climate whatever, fill in the blank. And we don't know. It's really difficult to model how humans behave. And um, there are great progress in research and trying to understand human behavior in groups, but I certainly don't know. I don't know how many people, who can stay, who can go, when. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. We do know that a lot of people are moving to areas that are very exposed to climate risks. And what happens from there on out, we have to build. And I think as scary as these things overlaid are, what gives me a lot of hope is that the future is ours to build. And there's never been a better time for science and I think also for, for people getting involved in their communities and the countries that they live in. And that's our task. We have to shape a sustainable, safe, good future for humanity. That's the task ahead of us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Climate Thinkers, a podcast from Svenska Dagbladet. It's produced by Clara Wallin and edited by Adam Svanell. A big thank you also to Gunvor Frikon, project manager. My name is Peter Alestig and in the next episode of Climate Thinkers I'll be in Copenhagen with glaciologist Jason Box who spent over a year on the world's largest island, Greenland. And he has seen with his own eyes the dramatic change that is happening on the Greenland ice sheet. How it's melting at a pace that has shocked climate scientists and made surprising discoveries what's actually driving the ice melt. Until then, thank you for listening.